Welcome to He Gets It Podcast. He, an acronym for Honoré's Enterprise, founded by Carlos and Tatum Honoré, gives speakers a provocative platform to address social, mental, and physical health issues that affect all Americans. This husband and wife duo are champions of social justice, racial disparities, and youth development. Carlos and Tatum have also created The Seed Project and has over 10 years of hands-on experience transforming the lives of at-risk youth through their nonprofit Fifth Ward Saints. For more information on The Seed Project, please visit honoraceenterprise.net. Get prepared to step out of your comfort zone with your host, Carlos Honore. All right, let's go. It's Friday, everybody. He gets the podcast live from Houston, Texas. Get ready for your breakthrough. Let's go. Has anyone ever told you you'll never amount to anything? He gets it. Afraid to take that leap of faith to do what you really want to do in your life? Huh. He gets that too. Has something happened in your life where you feel like you have no one to turn to or nowhere to go? Maybe your boss has just gotten on your nerves all week. And you just need to relax. He gets it. Y'all got to get it. Tune in. We're about to get it in. He gets Hello, it. And welcome to this edition, the fourth edition of He Gets It Podcast. We're your hosts. I'm Carlos Honore. And I'm Tatum Honore. Thank you guys for joining us. And happy Friday. Happy Friday. You want to toast? Forgot you had a drink? Yeah, I forgot. All right. So, up until this point, guys, we've been just giving you guys a little information about Honoré's Enterprise and He Gets It podcast, introducing ourselves, telling you about our family, kind of inspiring you guys to be the best versions of yourself. But now, as we say in our intro, that we talk about issues that are tough. And today's going to be the first issue that we really cover that may be a little controversial. You know, a lot of people feel, uh, have different views. Yeah, everybody has their own opinions about uh, things. But we're bringing it from a perspective as African-American parents raising three African-American boys. And we felt this podcast was important enough to where we actually, this is our first time using video. So um, that's another milestone for us. So but today. we did that so you guys could see our emotion behind it. You know, when we're talking on the computer and podcast, it's hard to see. But this is an issue that we felt that we want to bring you guys into our home to be a little more personable when we talk about this. Exactly, because it's near and dear to our hearts. So today we will be talking about um, anxiety-induced um, parenting in the black community. And there's so many different places we can take this, but we're going to try to narrow it down to three subtopics, uh, which are uh, the treatment of kids of color in institutions, whether that's schools, the child protective system, the criminal justice system, uh, health care. Um, we're also going to talk about our children encounters with um, authority figures, as well as, uh, last but not least, talking about 
our kids and not letting our anxieties as parents, you know, um, have a negative impact on our kids. So um, we'll first start off with if we can start talking about the treatment of our children um, in institutions. Uh, Carlos and I, we have a, a wealth of experience in working with a nonprofit organization and in working with at-risk youth, as well as um, two of our children have learning disabilities. So we're very <laughs> well versed in this area. So Yeah, and so for us, number one, let's just start with the nonprofit. Um, as you guys know, the Fifth Ward Saints is an organization that we started 10 years ago, and we've merged social services with athletics and came up with a social-emotional athletic development program, which is SEED. We actually have a curriculum for SEED that we can take and implement in any school or institution uh, in the U.S. But I quickly found when we started um, dealing with kids with underlying issues, whether it be learning disabilities, behavior disorders, or whatever it may be, that there was such a big gap between um, the understanding that some teachers, I'm not going to categorize all teachers and say all. Yeah, but some are really good. Some are great. Yeah, we've, know, we've had some teachers that really are patient with our kids. and But we do have some kids, some teachers that are really disconnected to um, why certain kids don't respond and certain kids don't learn like all the other kids. And I would also say, you know, and, and that's not their fault, you know, a lot of at-risk youth come from backgrounds that, you know, are not familiar with many people. And so what happens is when you bring a child from a totally different environment, an environment in which maybe there's physical abuse or maybe there's no food in the house, or maybe that kid is homeless, and you bring them into an institutionalized setting in which a teacher's job is to teach, and we do understand that. However, there should be some sort of um, curriculum um, there for teachers in order for them to help identify kids who are at risk, but also implementing individualized plans for those kids. What we've had experiences with kids with significant behavioral issues mm -hmm. that, and we have to say in our eyes, were treated very differently than um, other kids. And these kids also were kids of color. These yeah. were, you know, we're being honest. And <clears throat> the most shocking thing for me is when I first entered and started going in and meeting, I was surprised to see that the kids that they referred to our program, they were in the class with other kids, but they were off at a little table by themselves doing something totally different than what the other kids were doing. So my first question was, so what are these kids doing over on in the corner by themselves, what are they studying and how does that um, work with what you guys are doing? How does it mesh? And it was basically that I, I didn't get an answer, an answer that satisfied me anyway. And I'm not saying that, like Tatum said, you know, people, 
teachers are there to teach. And when you have a kid that have an underlying issue that acts out, it's hard to stop what you're doing to mm-hmm. teach that or to, to redirect. Yeah, it's hard mm-hmm. to do that. And I get it. But like Tatum said, there has to be something in place better than separating them from the rest of the class, making them feel different and having them do something different than all the other kids are doing. Yeah, and, and not just that. Uh, another piece is uh, our program is almost 100 uh, percent African-American and it's referrals that come from the school system. So in our eyes, you know, is, you know, is that because why why is that? You know, mm-hmm. why is it that most referrals that are coming to us that have behavioral issues or, um, you know, uh, at-risk type issues um, referred to us. You know, we can count on one hand um, kids of other um, race that were um, referred to our program. So with that being said, you know, I just think that there needs to be a better understanding of how um, of at-risk kids and what's causing the issues and how do we come up with plans for these kids and how do we come up with these plans in the classroom for those kids and not necessarily um, make it uh, a point to where that kid is ostracized or you know, like Carlos said before, um, set off in a corner because they're quote unquote unable to behave or unable to participate in what the other kids are doing. And I think it's also important for teachers to understand that, you know, behavior, bad behavior isn't the only identifying factor of at risk. For me, an at risk kid is a kid that's maybe unattended after school or on free and reduced lunch, one or more parents incarcerated. There's a there's several identifying factors that you can use to categorize it. And I hate using the, the term at risk, putting labels on a kid, but for the sake of what we're talking about, there's several several different identifying factors that factors into um, identifying a kid as at risk. And behavior is only one out of many. You know, there have and you guys have seen it on social media sites where you know the police have been called for kids of color you know as young as six years old you know um, and handcuffed imagine the trauma that that kid experiences at such a young age being handcuffed and taken down to a police station because they were told because the police was called and the kid did not behave in the manner everyone wanted them to behave in. And that, and that starts that negative interaction with police right there. Exactly. So when, once that kid is handcuffed by that police officer, he has a negative opinion of cops from that point on. He or she. He or she. Cause it's been a, several girls yep. as well that have been. But that ca- that carries over into as they start to progress. And and for us, while we're on the subject of uh, schools and 
for us, the anxiety, since we're talking about anxiety of parents, anxiety for us kicks in when these teachers, we go to these meetings, like Tatum said, we have two kids that have learning disabilities. And our oldest son has, I think, evolved, and he's on the honor roll now. He still struggles, but he tries hard. And our youngest son, he's still young. He's morphing, but the frustration and anxiety for us comes in because we know that our kid is treated differently from some of the white kids in the classroom when it comes to behavior redirection. And uh, they come up with a plan that we sit that they sit down with us and I can understand how some parents go into these meetings and not understanding what these people are telling them. If we didn't have the background we had, we wouldn't know how to ask the right questions. Exactly. We wouldn't know how to ask what are the outcomes, how are you going to measure the outcomes. A parent just coming in, they're going to say, oh, they're trying to help my kid. They're going to sign everything, and then it's going to be a revolving door. They'll be back at the same meeting six months from now. Nothing has changed, but they don't know. They need somebody to advocate for them to go in and and attend those meetings on their behalf or with them. Yeah, exactly. And then when it comes to at-risk kids, you also have to take into consideration the parent as far as what's going on with that parent. That parent may be working two and three jobs, especially during these times, Mm -hmm. you know, to try to make ends meet. So there's so much homework and so much, so many things going on that that parent may not be connected as much as a parent who's a stay at home mom who can commit the time to doing the homework and uh, being a part of the what is it called PTO. the the PTA the PTA <laughs> the PTA the PTA, oh, PTA. not PTO oh, pay time off <laughs> but being a part of the PTA you know for us uh, for example I mean we we work hard but we have jobs where we can. It's flexible. So we can make time to do things, you know, for our kids and go to the schools, especially when it comes to those art meetings, because those things are very important. Uh, We go into those meetings and we make sure that what is written on that paper is what we also feel as parents, as what our kids may need in the classroom. And I will say the district that the kids are in now um, have done a pretty decent job of uh, working with us. Now, of course, there have been some situations with some teachers in which we had to advocate on our kids' behalf. But with that being said, like Carlos said before, um, there's always something that can be done in situations in which um, the schools have identified an at-risk youth and taking um, into consideration what the parents may be dealing with and maybe bringing in, in an advocate for that kid and that person can help uh, along with that parent. I have one more thing to touch on before we move on to, um, as a refer as a re. Relates as to. it relates to schools and anxiety. <laughs> what you had a brain? I for had it? too much of that drink right there. <laughs> I thought that was Gatorade. Nope. In a cup, no. <laughs> but anyway, I'm gonna tell you guys a story. I want to share a story with you guys, and 
since we're talking about the gap between teachers, some teachers, and the understanding they have for the kids that they serve. And and hold on, let's back up. Let's not just say teachers, just the the system, because I think a lot of the problems that are encountered, whether it's the schools, the criminal justice, healthcare, child protective services, those are systems. And I think the issue is attacking those systems and making sure those systems are equal for all kids to be able to be served in an equal manner. I agree, but right now we're talking about schools. We were talking about schools. Okay. <laughs> yeah, okay. So in yeah. the school system, the teachers that we were talking about where there's a gap and maybe they don't have a background that can relate to some of the kids in their classroom, I get it. But this story goes like this. We had a kid in our organization and um, we communicate weekly with the counselors at the schools um, to kind of see where the kids, how their behavior's been, any concerns. And one teacher had a concern that the kid was falling asleep in class. She was getting frustrated with him. She couldn't figure out how to keep him awake. So we followed up with the parents to find out, okay, why is little Johnny, I'm using little Johnny, that's not his name. Why is little Johnny falling asleep in class? We're getting reports from the counselors that he's falling asleep. And come to find out that she was working late at night, single mother. There were three siblings there, so he had to watch his siblings until 1 o'clock in the morning until his mom came home from work. That's, number one, a responsibility that shouldn't be put on a child, but that's something that that teacher or that counselor or that administrator could have followed up like we did with that parent to get a better understanding on what's going on. So we talked about um, anxiety and and how when it comes to uh, a parent's anxiety with our kids going into schools and the school system, um, there's also the anxiety that comes along with our kids and the possible encounters that they have with with authority figures. And this really hit home the other day. Uh, now, I have a story to tell. Um, you know, we just um, had seen on the news the Aubrey um, case and you know, it's so it feels, I don't know, it feels like a a balloonist uh, burst, you know, in your in your soul. You know, I don't know. It's almost like your breath is taken away every time you hear that there's been another um, killing of an unarmed man. And I, I have a statistic here, actually, fifty four percent of unarmed black men are more likely to be killed than their white counterparts. Now, that speaks volumes. And as parents of a grown, a 25-year-old, as well as a 15-year-old, and and we have an 11-year-old, there are a lot of anxieties that come along with that as well. Um, just the other day, and I mean, it was, um, I had to, I actually wrote a, a blog about it because it hit home so hard. 
But um, our middle son, who's 15, was, you know, um, he likes to work out with his friends. They're all, they play football, basketball, and they're all on the same team. And so um, he came in and he asked, could he go over to his friend's house? Now his friend lives across the the highway. So it's, it's not that far, but he was going to a neighborhood that, in which they're not familiar with him. Now, our neighborhood, I would say they're pretty familiar with our kids. We've, we've been here now for about six or seven years. Um, and so when he asked me, could he go to his friend's home, you know, I didn't even, you know, I was like, yeah, of course, because I know they like to work out. And then this is so strange. I, I was walking down the stairs and I saw him putting things in a backpack and I mean, the anxiety immediately kicked in. I was like, what, why are you putting things in your backpack? And he was like, well, mom, I I need my cleats. I need, you know, my equipment. I was like, oh yeah, yeah, that's right. And so as he was putting all those items in his backpack, the, the next thought that came across my mind was, oh my God, what if someone thinks he's stolen something or, or what if, um, someone in that other neighborhood thinks he's robbed somebody or something. And so, um, I tried to, you know, just put it out of my mind because we can't allow, you know, our feelings to stop our kids from doing things that they love to do. And so, um, as he walked out of the house, I uh, ran out the house and I, I told him, uh, you know, be careful. And it is so sad that we as parents have to feel those type of emotions just with our kid asking to go walk to a friend's house. Um, and the fun, the funny thing is, as she came to me after that, exactly. I was sitting in my office as he was leaving, and I told her I felt the same way. Because, you know, I put myself in the shoes. When I hear about all these uh, black men and young black kids getting shot by cops that were unarmed, my first thought is the parents, you know, how could I put myself in their shoes and how can you, I couldn't fathom losing my child in a way that, and then still to not find justice for the men that, that, that has killed your child. I couldn't fathom that. So every time my kids leave and I hear the, the police sirens and, you know, I, I don't, automatically jump to um, something's happened to them but it crosses my mind when I hear a police siren and they're not in the house I automatically think you know where are they oh my yeah yeah exactly what, what are they doing uh, did they tell me where they were going that's the anxiety that we're talking about and I think as black parents we're not the only ones that feel that way you mm-hmm. know because the way things are going like Tatum said earlier it's it feels like things are about to come to a, a head and this vigilante stuff and people taking matters into their own hands and using firearms, that's a whole nother level than what's been going on. And I feel like we're to the point now where if we don't put a stop to this and hold people accountable for their actions, that things are going to boil over. And that's sad to say that because 
at one point I thought that we were getting past all this race relations and it was getting better. And, you know, even the younger generation that's coming up, they're much better than my generation and the generation before me. But we've taken quite a few steps back okay. since our the current administration. And you guys can feel how you want about that. At the end of the day, that's the leader of the country. And some of the things that he says in his speeches makes us as black people feel like he's insensitive to some of the issues that we care about. What we want to do also in this podcast is talk about, you know, right now, um, the only things we can do is we can protest and we can try to do as best as we can as far as talking with our kids and, you know, being open and honest with our kids. And, And Carlos and I try to do this pretty often because we want our kids to be aware of, you know, who they are. We want them to be aware of the society in which we live in now. And we don't want them to be clueless. And when I say that clueless, there are some black parents out there who are clueless. You know, um, Carlos, yeah, we we had a situation not too long ago in which Carlos was um, uh, speaking with someone who um, who's a part of something that we were doing, and they kind of got into a heated discussion, and she told him, well, don't come here with that black man stuff. And she's black. And she's black. Raising black kids. So in speaking with... Our kids, what we try to do is we sit down with them on a daily basis, you know, and talk to them about what's happening, you know, in the world. You know, they're very aware of all of the the shootings, you know, the um, Trayvon Martin and the um, Freddie Gray and and the list goes on and on. But our kids are very aware of who these people are and what happened to them. And, you know, it's, um, we hear people all the time saying, um, you know, talk, you know, they, that person should have listened to the police officer. That person should have followed instructions. And, okay. I do understand that. However, that doesn't give you the right to shoot and kill a person because they haven't followed instructions. Mm -hmm. Um, So what we try to do is we do ask our kids to follow our instructions that we have taught them in which, you know, if they encounter uh, a police officer or a vigilante uh, person, how to react and respond um, to that person. And we also talk about the good in people. Um, We don't want our kids to think that people in um, authority uh, positions are bad. We want them to know that there are very good people out there, who people who will have their back. That's the people that we call if we need them. But we also want them to know and be aware of, like I said before, who they are because I gave the statistics earlier. 
you know, 54% of unarmed black men are more likely to be killed than their counterparts. So how do we recommend that you guys deal with the issue of anxiety that's brought on by your worry about the safety and well-being of your children? And to be honest with you, there's not one answer that I can give you guys today. But the advice that I can give is that you guys have conversations with your kids on a regular basis about current events and things that are going on that affect black people in America. It's sad, but we have to have those conversations with our children about how to act when you get pulled over by the police. We've all had that conversation with our kids if you have a teenager. Those conversations had to be had because we don't want things to get out of hand because our kids don't know how to conduct themselves in the eye of the law when they get pulled over. And lastly, uh, change begins with educating. So have conversations with your neighbors and friends and help them better understand this issue and how it affects black parents. And I feel if they have a better understanding on it, they would be more empathetic in the future. And as far as anxiety goes, if you guys are suffering from anxiety due to anything, seek medical attention because anxiety is a real issue that needs to be dealt with properly. This is a really hot topic and we have gone way over our time today. We were only supposed to keep it uh, for 20 minutes, but because it's so near and dear to us, and like I said before, because we're raising black men and we are in a situation where we feel the anxieties, you know, we feel like it's very important for us to talk about this. And we don't expect everyone to agree with what, you know, what we're saying. You know, this is America. Everyone has a right to their own opinions. Um, but I'm sure this will, you know, uh, ring home to many um, families of color, especially those who are raising uh, black young men. So there you have it, guys. We appreciate you hanging in there with us today and spending some time with us. It's been fun. Don't forget to tune in next Friday, 7 o'clock p.m. Central Standard Time. We'll see you guys there. Enjoy your weekend.